Thank you, Dr. Swain. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be thinking together about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31 for a few minutes together in our time this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. The title of the sermon is, We Preach Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. As you're turning, uh, the new academic year brings things like convocation and formal events and opportunities. It also means the fall, the, the beginning of the fall sports for Spurgeon College. And uh, tonight is our first home game for the women's volleyball team, and there's a tailgate party associated with it, and so I hope each one of you will be there. It's going to be a, a fantastic evening. And then this past, I guess, Friday, our men's and women's soccer team both had their first games of the season, and uh, they were exhilarating games. We, one of the teams lost, and one of the teams won. Uh, I'm not going to clarify who did what, <laughs> but I will add that the women's soccer team in the history of Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College remains undefeated. <laughs> and every word of that is factually true. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, outright foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the spies God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning, we ask that these verses, in our brief time together, would frame for us anew what it means to be men and women of the cross of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, convocation is always a day of promise. The service itself is steeped in tradition. The trappings of the service itself reminds us of the historic ancient elements of a convocation service. Convocation is rooted in the medieval university, and our regalia, what my kids over the years have referred to as my dress, our regalia is more than academics playing dress up. It signifies the importance of our work. There's a formality to this day because there's a formality to our service. 
There's a gravity to this day because there's a gravity to our work. And as we gather this morning as a seminary, we look forward to the dawning of the new academic year, reflecting, though, in both directions, gives us a renewed awareness of the promises of God. We reflect on our past, both distant and recent, and we are strengthened by the clear signs of God's faithfulness. In 1957, Southern Baptists founded this institution. Throughout our history, as I've already imitated, this institution has been more or less theologically faithful, but God in his kindness gave us a second chance in the 1990s. He drew us back to theological faithfulness, and so here we are with full-throated confession of our beliefs. He and his people have provided for us. They have held us accountable. They have sent us their sons and daughters to train, and they continue to walk with us. That's our past. Our future, we look towards with hopefulness. God's hand has been on us for good. His hand is on us for good, and by faith we believe his hand will be on us for good. We have every reason to be hopeful as we gather this August 30th morning in the year 2022 with this new academic year, historic enrollment, abundant financial provision, an accomplished faculty, dedicated students, and the ever-present promise that Christ is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But to whom much is given, much is expected." Convocation thus for us signifies a coming together, a a gathering to dedicate ourselves anew to the Lord's work, to seek his favor, to seek his protection, to seek his blessing. And it's at its heart an act of consecration, setting ourselves apart in a spirit-enabled pursuit of holiness, to serve and honor God with all that we have and all that we do with all that we are. And central to the service, then, is the reflection on Scripture, which is why we look this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. We know a good deal about this city, Corinth, and a fair amount about the church, Corinth. In particular, we know a lot about the church because of the correspondence that we have, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Corinth as a city is findable on a map. Findable then, findable now. Located in ancient and modern Greece. And there's much that can be said about the city in its ancient context, but the main thing for importance this morning is the city was known for its abject immorality. The city at its very heart had, which was common in the ancient world, an acropolis, or a high city within the city, and this acropolis was known as the Acrocorinth. And this high place, this Acrocorinth, was a place where the citizens could retreat to for security if they're under siege, but day-to-day it functioned as a summit for gathering and as a place for worship in its temple. The Acrocorinth was a 2,000-foot-high granite mound, this high city within a city, and in this Acrocorinth was a temple, a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Associated with this temple were about 1,000 temple prostitutes who in the evening would come down for the temple to to ply their trade in the streets of Corinth. It gave the city of Corinth a a solid reputation known far and wide. Cities in the ancient world were known for different things, right? Perhaps their political influence or their their cultured state or their, their education system or their advanced medicine, their military strength or whatever. Corinth was known for their carnality. 
They were known for their immorality and not just designated so by Christians, but even by other pagans. It was Las Vegas on a bad day. I'm always mystified when I drive down the road and see a church named Corinth Baptist Church. Why would one choose to name the church Corinth Baptist Church? Knowing what we know about the city and what we know about this New Testament church. In fact, in the ancient world, a, a phrase developed that would be used that meant to act like a Corinthian. He acts like a Corinthian, which meant to act in gross immorality. Now, we know that the city was immoral, but we also know that this church was quite troubled. Paul founded this church, Second Missionary Journey. He went to Corinth right after being in Athens, as I read in Acts 17. Keep that mental note. From Athens to Corinth, he went. He was there about 18 months, and there with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, the work took root. And then Paul migrated on for further gospel work and left the church in their hands. In spite of his investment, in spite of their leadership and service, the church still had real trouble. And some of that was the good kind of trouble. What is the good kind of trouble? The good kind of trouble is when people from a pagan background come to faith in Christ and their life has a lot of complication because they lived many years of sin and the messy work of ministry sometimes is helping them sort that out. That's the good kind of trouble. But they had a lot of the bad kind of trouble. We know from reading 1 Corinthians that sexual sin is a pronounced issue in this church. Factionalism was evident. Eye of Paul, eye of Apollos, eye of Christ. Issues of divorce and marriage. Issues of litigation and church members suing one another. Mishandling the Lord's Supper, abusing the spiritual gifts, false doctrine concerning the resurrection and so forth. A lot was wrong. So much so, we read the rebuke in 1 Corinthians, but in so doing, we read it and we find in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul actually mentions a previous, more severe letter he's written them that the Lord did not see fit for us to have in Holy Scripture. Another letter is referenced in 2 Corinthians, bringing the correspondence that we know of to four letters. So here we are, we find ourselves in these verses, at the beginning of this book, where so much is wrong in the church. So much is being confronted. So much error is being corrected. It begins with this great statement about the wisdom of God and the preaching of the cross. These great verses that for us not only open the book, but for us it's fitting to open the academic year with. We are people of the cross. We are people who say, as Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. We don't have time to fully unpack these verses, but I want to just draw your attention to, to four main reasons we see here thematically in these verses as to why the cross must be central to life and ministry. Four main reasons why the cross, the preaching of the cross, the teaching of the cross, the living of the cross, the sharing of the cross must be central to our lives and ministries. Whether you are an MDiv student, a PhD student, or a newly minted Spurgeon College student, all of us are to be a people of the cross. And as we read these verses, we're reminded this morning that there is a divine logic to the kingdom, a divine rationale to the kingdom that makes perfect sense in the mind of God, as we have eyes of faith, makes perfect sense to us. But to the elites of every age and every place, it's foolishness to them. We're people of the cross because the cross is the sinner's only hope. Notice verse 18. 
after Paul referencing in chapter 1 through verse 17, this division and Christ being divided and people saying, I am of Paul and I have Apollos and I have Cephas and I have Christ. And then he gets to the fact in verse 17 that he preached Christ. He preached the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. Then verse 18, he begins to move towards why the cross must be central. And he declares here that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul here is speaking to the way the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and particularly here the message of the cross, and works effectually in the hearts of sinners, bringing them to faith in Christ. And those whom are being saved, that message of the cross is to be cherished above all. It's savored above all. It's defended above all. It's proclaimed above all. But in contrast, verse 19, he says, there's a wisdom of the age of the wise that I shall destroy. The cleverness of the clever I have set aside. So much so, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We above all things are to be a people of the cross. We love Charles Spurgeon here, rightly so. Every Christian figure has their less glamorous sides. We're just yet to find that in Charles Spurgeon. When Spurgeon, the phenom, preached his first sermon in the new Metropolitan Tabernacle, March 25th, 1861, he walked to the pulpit, turned to Acts 5.42 as his text, preached Christ. He famously declared this. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked, what is my, pre, my creed? I reply, it is Jesus Christ. Spurgeon knew what Paul knew, what we must know, that the cross is the sinner's only hope. Secondly, focusing on the cross for us clarifies the message. Notice verse 22. Verse 21, for in the foolishness, for, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. Now notice verse 22, for Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Remember the Jews wanted signs. They, they requested of our Lord, give us a sign, show us signs. Remember that great exchange in Matthew 12 where Jesus said, you want a sign? I've given you plenty of signs. We have an overflow of signs. Jesus virtually vanquished the ill wherever he went. He walked on water. He preached with power, unlike their scribes, unlike their teachers. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, fed the multitudes, and of course, raised the dead. 
And Jesus said to them, you want a sign? You'll be given no more signs but the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Paul here, referencing that, I think, says Jews have this desire for signs. The Greeks, again, he's in Greece now, he's in Corinth. The Greeks, they want wisdom. This is the place of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. They want wisdom. They want rhetoric. But to that, we preach Christ. Preach Christ crucified. Those wanting a sign, it's a stumbling block. Those looking for wisdom, foolishness. But to those who are the call, Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Recall, Paul is in Greece. He's now in Corinth. He was just in Athens. The great city of the ancient world, known for their philosophers, for their instruction, for their thought leadership, we might say. And as I read a portion of the scene in the scriptural call to worship, Paul was there, and as he was there ministering, it's recounted for us this great scene there, the Acropolis. I had the occasion to be um, in Turkey this summer with the IMB and visiting fusion teams. And on the way back, I stopped over in Greece briefly to um, be with IMB workers there. And anyway, while we we're there, I had the opportunity to be in Athens, I had a little window of time. And so my wife was with me, and it's my two oldest daughters too. And we got to, uh, we were right there, you're right there. The Acropolis is like right there. Athens is not a big city. Uh, geographically not that large and not that big, uh, not that big in its numbers of citizens either, its population. So you're there and like you're there, like you're eating a little fast food and like there's the Acropolis over there. Okay, I think we'll go to, we'll go to it. And so uh, and so we kind of we kind of mosey that way. We went there and, uh, and and you can see it. It is it is amazing to be there. You go up the Acropolis. You you walk. It's not that high, not that far really. You walk up there, and you're there and you see what is left of of the Parthenon. And you're there. You see what's left of these of these ancient temples. And you're walking through and you see, my goodness, this is what Paul is referring to in Acts 17 when he begins to scold them and say, you, you, I, you know, you, you, these are the gods you worship and you even have a temple to the unknown God. And what I, what I had not connected yet until I was there is Mars Hill is like right there. And so it's almost like we're here and Mars Hill is you know, at the student center. It's about that close, maybe a little further. And so you can see Paul there on Mars Hill and the, Are the Areopagus there on it where people gather for debate and discussion and, and, and conduct civic business are there. And he's saying to them, talking, and he's pointing like, like, just like I would be pointing to the students and it's right there. I see your religious people. I've seen it. It's there. And I see your temples. And you even have one to the unknown God. But all of that is wrong. You're grasping in the air when God has sent his son. And that message there in Acts 17 and the message here in Corinth, he's preaching right after being in Acts in Athens. He's saying, we preach Christ and we do so understanding the wisdom of the age. They're not only disinclined to believe it, they scoff at it. And they scoff at us too. But that's where we are heartened because we know that God has given us a message and there's no ultimate confusion about what that is to be. 
very heart of all of our preaching is the preaching of Christ. The very heart of all of our teaching is the teaching of the cross of Christ. The very heart of our discipleship is the gospel of Christ. The very heart of this institution is the message of Christ. Notice verse 26, and here I love how Paul continues to build this out. And the third reason we preach Christ is because it fortifies our convictions. Notice verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the spies of God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. What Paul is saying here to us, in essence, is saying, embrace your label. And the quicker as followers of Christ, we're able to get over what the world thinks of us, what the neighbors think of us, what the media may think of us, what the critics may think of us because of our commitment to Christ, the better place we will be. It occurred to me, um, the great contrast, here we are this morning convocation, uh, a week ago, I had the opportunity to lead a, a senior retreat, some of our senior administrators here in the area of Boston, and while we were there, we got to go to Harvard for a while, and I gave the guys a little tour around Harvard and um, showed them some, some of the neat places there, and even at Harvard, you, you do see the vestiges in places of their Christian founding. There at Johnson Gate emblazoned the founding purpose to train new ministers, so when their present gospel ministers lie in the dust, a new generation of ministers will be there to take their place. And then you walk around and you see some other marks of, of Harvard's Christian origins, Christian heritage, but that, 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 those beliefs left town long ago. And so we might think of Harvard as being the most elite American institution, perhaps the largest endowment, the oldest. And if they're the elite of the elite, can I tell you something? Like we are preserving equilibrium in the universe. To the people at Harvard, we are the other extreme. No one in Harvard Divinity School this morning is sitting around thinking, I wonder what Midwestern's doing at Convocation today. Their faculty are not perusing our faculty publications. And you know what? I am more than fine with that. You know what? God has called us to be a people of faithfulness and to be men and women of conviction. And it's not just that the preaching of cross, of the cross is foolishness. It's the totality of Christian truth that we hold to. I've mentioned already four confessional statements that we hold to here. Every jot and tittle of those is important. Not just the big blocks that are, that are obvious, but all of those are important because we are called to maintain a public witness of Christian truth, whether it's issues of life and death, whether it's issues of, of, of marriage and gender, whether it's issues of, of complementarity, whether it's issues of biblical inspiration and errancy, all of those we hold to, and we do so joyfully, courageously, convictionally. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you this morning the quicker you get to a place of inner equanimity where you just don't care, and I don't mean that callously, but I mean that where you're sturdy enough in your own gospel witness and beliefs, then it really doesn't bother you if a world rejects those or rejects you. It may sadden you, but it doesn't unnerve you. You'll be in a healthy place. I was uh, in Denver a few years ago preaching, and it was one of these scenarios where I, I was kind of a little junket, preaching a couple different places, and I had to check out of my hotel like at you know, lunchtime. And I was preaching that, that night um, at, a, at an event, and I was going to be driving somewhere else after the event. So I was kind of a man stuck for a few hours, needed a place to go. And so I found a, a little restaurant, and uh, 
there was a restaurant I went in, it was, you know, like two o'clock and the place was totally empty, but they were staying open till the dinner hour. And I talked to the, the receptionist. And I said, look, I, I'm really not looking to eat. I just kind of want to drink coffee and kind of do some work for a few hours. Can, can I, is it okay if I loiter here? I said, look, I promise I'll, I'll tip the waiter generously. And so I'm just there like with an open Bible reviewing my sermon, you know, for, for three or four hours. And uh, the waiter would come by like every 30 minutes or so. Okay. Would you like coffee, more water? Well, I got to know this young man over the course of three or four hours. And, uh, and he sees my Bible out. Oh, what are you? Are you, you know, like, he's like, are you a priest? What are you? Well, not quite. Uh, uh, so I'm trying to explain, you know, our universe to him and what's the seminary, what they do. Well, so this conversation is kind of intermittent over about four hours. This thing is building, building, building into this gospel. And as I'm talking to him for four hours, I'm processing incrementally a lot about him from a broken home, um, his own story, and, and not to get too much into the weeds here, but his own self-presentation. You can tell there's a lot of sexual confusion in his past and perhaps in his present. And uh, I'm sharing a little bit about my story, my calling, my testimony, what I do, what we do here. And I can see by the hour on the one hand signs of God's grace that it's like there's, there's some light shining in 20 years of darkness. But also like every interaction we have is altogether bewildering to him. He'd never been around a Bible. He'd never been around Christian truth claims. He'd never been around an evangelical. He'd never been around, never been around, never been around. But hear me clearly. The most radical of all of our truth claims actually is that God sent his son. That God sent his son, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, yielded his life open on the cross, was placed in a borrowed tomb, three days later raised again, coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. And oh, by the way, if you don't believe in him, you'll spend eternity separated from him in hell. That's hard to swallow to the modern man. But the Spirit of God. But the power of the gospel. And so for us, we rest in that. And so I say to you this morning, own those convictions proudly, boldly, cheerfully. But as you do know, that ministry, and not just ministry, Christian life and living in the 21st century may well mean rejection. It may or may not mean persecution. It may or may not mean poverty. You may or may not have to take vows of poverty or chastity like our Roman Catholic friends. We don't do that. Perhaps we should take vows to be fools. Not just in ministry, but for all who name the name of Christ, for our Spurgeon College students, for all. And you see, we realize how inverted Spurgeon College is. For most of Americans and most Christians in America, sadly, Christian parents will raise their kids and send them off to a college where four years professors work to deconstruct their faith. Here's the opposite. You come here to be fortified and taught the faith. But many college students have a conventional college experience, go off to college with their parents' support and affirmation, and they go to a place where that faith is undermined. Spurgeon College students, many of you came here, especially those in the college who are pursuing ministry, not with your family support, but with their second-guessing your calling. And you're willing to be counted as fools for them even. And so for us, an embrace of the cross and preaching the cross fortifies our conviction. Then notice finally how this passage ends where Paul summarized, what is God's eternal logic? What is God's divine logic here? What's going on? And he says, look, verse 28 or verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things strong, 
the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30, it's his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and we have as our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Verse 31, why? So that let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. Let us who boast, boast in the Lord. We are people of the cross. We are people who preach Christ and him crucified. And as we do, and as sinners come to faith in Christ, God gets the greater glory because he's not only God the creator, he's God the redeemer, as Calvin wrote. And God gets the greater glory through those conversions and through that ministry and through our lives and efforts. And that's who we want in this place to get the glory. It's a delight to welcome you this morning to convocation and to the new semester and all that, it, all that it holds for us. We do so as men and women of faith and imperfect people, but a redeemed people. We do so trusting God to continue to grow us, to build us, to lead us, and to sustain us this academic year. Dr. King, would you come and give us our word of benediction? Let's pray together. Our triune God, we once more confess together that you are great and worthy of our every praise. As we leave here today, God, we ask that with the Apostle Paul, that according to the riches of the glory, of your glory, that you would strengthen us this semester with power in our inner being through your spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. May we, being rooted and grounded in love, comprehend with all the saints the immeasurable length and width, height, and depth of your love, which surpasses understanding. This semester, may every member of the Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College community who bears your name be filled with all the fullness of God. God, would you increase our joy and generosity. Grow us in holiness and humility. Be glorified by our speech and our service. Would you keep us from idols and deliver us from the evil one? Help us to be faithful and fruitful as we labor for the church and for the kingdom. For we know yet you are able to do abundantly more than we can think or even ask in this service. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glory this and every semester. And all God's people said,